Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. The letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus. Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote it to lay a solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so that they could then live out those doctrines for the glory of God. We're now nearing the end of the application section of this letter, and it's been very challenging and good, right? Challenging and good. And the call is to rise to the challenge because we love Christ. And love for Christ is the thing that compels us to continue on in our quest to honor Him with our fast and fading life. Recently, Paul's been imploring us to be spirit-filled Christians who do the will of God as found in the Word of God. And that's seen in many ways, and it should radically affect how we live out our lives on a daily basis, knowing that God is watching. And the call is to live as unto Christ in everything that we do. In today's passage, Paul begins to conclude this letter to the Ephesians. Anybody sad about that? We're nearing the end of Ephesians. He, he, he begins to conclude this letter to the Ephesians by imploring them to be strong. What a word. Let's look. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We'll stop here for now. The the passage begins with two commands. The first being this, to be strong in the Lord. Note the word finally in verse 10. The word marks the beginning of the end of this letter. So what Paul says here is something that he wants embedded in our hearts and in our minds as believers. So he says, finally, in light of all that God's done for you, how He's eternally loved you and made you His own, how He has blessed you and chosen you and adopted you and redeemed you and given you an eternal inheritance and made you spiritually alive when you were spiritually dead in your sin, brought you near, made you a fellow citizen, heir, and family member with every other believer and so much more. And then, in light of the godly conduct that God calls every believer to live in because we are compelled by love for Him, and in light of the fact that He gives us His Spirit who lives in us and helps us and fills us and guarantees what is to come and so much more. In light of all that, look, there's a battle to fight in the Christian life. And we who love Him are called to be strong. In light of all those other things, we are now called to be strong and to fight well. So finally, in light of everything that we have seen so far in Ephesians, be strong in the Lord. Why would Paul say that? Because this is what's needed. Hey, God doesn't want a bunch of weak Christians. No. He wants strong ones. Right? Why? Because the Christian life is a battleground and not a playground. As one noted, God has no place for spiritual pacifists. God calls every saint to arms because we're all involved in a grim, terrible, and bloody conflict. And that's right. And strength is what's needed. Note that the call is to be strong, not in ourselves, good thing, but in the Lord, and that's very important. So how are we strong? We are strong in the Lord, and and look, in the power of His might, not ours. And that's good news for us. That's real good news for us. That the source of our strength doesn't come from ourselves, again, good thing, but the strength and the power and the might, it comes from God. That changes everything. 
Paul's mentioned the need for strength already in chapter 1 and then in chapter 3. In 3.16, he prayed that they would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And again, this is true good news for us because God provides all this power and might for us in Christ. And the call is for us to utilize that full power. The word for power here is a Greek word dunamis, from which we get our English words dynamite and dynamic from. The word refers not so much to explosive one-time power and might, but instead to intrinsic power and might. Might to carry out a function to the end. Might to endure until the task is fulfilled. Might and energy to do what needs to be done successfully and to the very, very end. Note that this is power that we in Christ already have. So in chapter 3, Paul didn't pray for power to be given to these believers, no. But instead, he prayed that they would be given a divine awareness of the might and the power that they already have in Christ. See, the power and the might was already there inside of them as Christians because God, the Spirit, indwells every Christian. And so Paul prayed that they would understand the greatness of the power that they already have and then utilize it. And so, as one said, Paul prayed that they they might be enlightened so that experientially they might truly possess their possessions. So, they had the power because God the Spirit indwells them, but they aren't really living like they have the power. And Paul wants them to understand that power more and more so that they will then utilize that in their own life. Power, power to what? Power to honor and glorify God more and more until we arrive safely home. Power to live the victorious Christian life to the very end. Overcoming sin and honoring Christ more and more in our lives. And also, look, power to stand against the wiles of the devil and to wage a good warfare against him. How good is that? Power. And we can indeed do that more and more because we have that power available to us in Christ because the powerful God of the universe, again, he lives in every true believer. Think about that. Now look, we aren't Samson and we aren't the apostles and we aren't Jesus. However, we are Christians who have God, the Spirit, indwelling us. And our great aim in life is to glorify God, to honor God, to please God, and to battle well for the glory of God. And good news He enables us by His mighty power to do that successfully as Christians throughout our lives more and more and more. And how good is that? And His Word is clear about that. God saves us by His mighty power and He sustains us by His mighty power. So we first experience His mighty power in the fact that He saved us and He raised us up from the spiritually dead. And then second, God's power comes to us as sanctifying power. In other words, power to help us live godly lives and and to battle well more and more. And look, if that's not the case, well, that's not God's fault. No, that's on you. That's on us. If we're not living in that power. We're commanded to grow and to fight and to battle well and to overcome and to be strong and to endure suffering and to evangelize and to stand firm and to wage a good warfare. And God has given us everything that we need to do that. Everything. He hasn't left us lacking in any way. Like what? What has He given us? Well, we're going to see that next week when we look at the armor of God. So come back next week. 
But here it is in a nutshell. His word, which is living and active and powerful. Prayer, which is very powerful. And, and one another, where we can encourage each other and help each other and make each other stronger and pray for each other and, and so on. So it's all there for us. On top of the amazing fact that the Spirit of God lives in us and He utilizes all these great means for His glory and for our good. One said, the problem is many never hook up. The system is in place, but it's dysfunctional because of ignorance, sin, or disbelief. And that's absolutely right. So we need to hook up by using His means for growth and and power, which means that we put on the spiritual armor every single day. But again, the power to be truly strong and growing and overcoming more and more, not perfectly, but more and more, is there for every Christian. Do we really believe that? Because many Christians act like they don't believe that God can really change people. That God can can really help them overcome that sin. That God can work a mighty work in them and through them. That God's power is indeed a reality for them to be truly strong and growing in the Lord. But God's word is clear about that. Look, God's power delivered millions of people out of Egypt and he saved them by walking through the middle of the Red Sea on dry ground while at the same time destroying the entire army of Egypt, the greatest army in the world at that time. God's power delivered Shadrach, Meshach, uh, and, and Abednego from being burned in the fiery furnace. God's power delivered Daniel from a den full of lions. God's power allowed his people to win ridiculous battles because he was the one who was fighting for them and so on. God's power can do anything. And again, you have that same power at work in you because you have the same God living in you as a Christian. According to Ephesians, once we were dead and now we're alive. (laughs) Once we were under the dominion of Satan and now we're seated in heavenly realms. That's where we're at. Once we were objects of wrath, now we're his glorious inheritance. Once we were separated, now we've been brought near. Once we were foreigners, now we are fellow citizens. Once we were aliens, now we are household members. Once we were dominated by the old self, now we've been made new. Once we were darkness, and now we are light. On and on it goes. The point is this. God changes everything. Anybody? Right? And we know that. And and through the power of God's might, we have a new nature. And while the old nature wasn't able to resist the wiles of Satan and the lusts of the flesh, good news, The the new nature operates with the power of the risen Lord. And therefore, by God's Spirit who lives in us, we can stand strong. We can overcome. We can wage a good warfare. Yes, we can. And the call is to plug in, to utilize that power, or as Paul says here, put on the armor. And that's the second command, to put on the whole armor of God, verse 11, because that's how you utilize the power. That's how you plug in. This is true good news for us because it shows us that even though we have a strong and wicked enemy who wants to devour us, look, we indeed have the means of fighting him, think about that, and of standing firmly and resolutely against him. Put on literally means to clothe yourself as with a garment. The tense of the word means to do it right now and to not delay. So there's great urgency with this command. You yourself 
are called to put on this armor. So you make the choice to do it and also to participate in the benefits of having it on. See, no one's going to put it on for you, right? No. And God isn't going to force you to put it on. No, you need to do it. You need to do it. And look, it's this armor that's an absolute requirement for daily victorious Christian living. And even when the battle seems to wane, we can never become apathetic or forget that we are indeed in intense spiritual warfare every single day of our lives for the rest of our lives until the day that we die. So the armor needs to become something that we put on every single day of our lives. And it should be more important than what do you do every day? Brushing your teeth, some of you. Brushing your hair, taking a shower, or eating breakfast. Because this is something that has spiritual and eternal ramifications. Note the word whole. This tells us that the call isn't to put on some of the armor every day. Or even to put on most of the armor every day. No, the call is to put on the whole armor of God every single day. The word is one word in the Greek, and it literally means holy armed. It refers to the complete suit of armor. Put that complete suit of armor on every single day, no exceptions. This is what wise Christians do. No exceptions. Why? Well, how about this? So you can stand against the wiles of the devil. I mean, wow, this is, this is serious here, right? The word stand conveys the idea of digging in and of holding your position. It means that you hold your ground, that you don't give even an inch of territory to the enemy. The picture here is of a soldier in battle. See, the sandals of a Roman soldier had spikes on them so that the soldier could dig in and hold his ground and, and not get knocked off course. So the word stand here isn't just a casual standing up. But it's a digging in and a holding your ground and then waging a good warfare as the battle is raging all around us. See, you don't flee and run, right? You don't flee and run. No, you stand firm, you hold fast, you fight well, and you never, ever quit fighting. Now look, our enemy, the devil, is wily. Wiles is the Greek word methodia method. It describes deliberate planning and a systematic approach, which can be a positive thing or a negative thing. And here it's clearly a negative thing. The devil is wily. Anybody know that? He's a schemer. He's crafty. He's a deceiver. He is orderly and logical in his steps against you to achieve his wicked purposes. He's clever. He's cunning. And he's extremely good at what he does. The word wiles is used to describe a wild animal cunningly stalking and unexpectedly pouncing on its prey. And that is what Satan is doing to you. And that's what Satan is doing to every Christian. He not only wants to bring you down and into sin, but he also loves to sidetrack you with false teaching or anything else that will take your focus off of Christ and put your focus on other things, lesser things. So he uses cleverness, craftiness, cunning, and deception. He wants to defeat you, discourage you, and dishearten you. And he carefully and methodically attacks each person's weaknesses and vulnerabilities. His wiles and methods are usually attractive, 
always deceptive and often ensnaring. Take heed. Take heed. Put on the armor or else you will indeed become his prey. Spurgeon noted this. Satan will attack you sometimes by force and sometimes by fraud. By might or by slight, he will seek to overcome you and no unarmed man can stand against him. Never, ever go out without all your armor on, for you can never tell where you may meet the devil. He's not omnipresent, but nobody can tell where he is not, for he and his troops of devils appear to be found everywhere on this earth. That's right. And guess what? He cheats. He's a cheater. He does whatever he can to get at you. He doesn't fight fair. He's truly a a wretched and a despicable enemy. Okay, so... Who exactly is the devil? Well, he's a fallen angel. God created myriads and myriads of angels, and Satan was one of those angels. But then Satan sinned against God, and he led a rebellion of other angels, a third of them, uh, who then became demons. His fall from heaven is symbolically described in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and then in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 18. While these two passages are referring specifically to the kings of Babylon and Tyre, most believe, and I do too, that they also reference the spiritual power behind those kings, namely Satan, the devil. Ezekiel 28 describes Satan as an exceedingly beautiful angel. In fact, Satan was likely the highest of all angels, but he wasn't content in his position. Look what Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 says. How you've fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth. You've weakened the nations. You said in your heart, I, see that? I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See what happened? Satan fell because of pride. He desired to be God, not to be a servant, a glad servant of God. So he got the big head. He turned against God. He led a rebellion of a third of the angels who are now demons. And he is now God and God's people's enemy and adversary. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Adversary means enemy. Someone who's actively and continuously hostile towards someone else. The devil to you. The devil to us, to every Christian. And look, he walks about like a roaring lion looking and seeking. Always looking and always seeking for someone to devour. See, the devil wants to devour you. And he will do whatever he can to do that. And he has you, the believer, in his sights. He's seeking you out. He's looking for people to pick off from the herd. He's constantly on this search and destroy mission, and he's deadly serious in what he does. He's always busy. He doesn't take any time off. He's always looking for that opening, seeking, 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 seeking. That tells us that the devil stalks every Christian. He's now on the loose. He's on the prowl looking to trap you, looking for opportunities to undermine our Christian walk. Not th- note that he's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. However, he has a massive infrastructure of demons who do his bidding and who are very, very good at what they do. The devil says, I'm looking for the spiritually naive. 
I'm patrolling the earth for simple souls who think that I'm not real. I'm looking for those who think that this is just a game. I'm, I'm looking for those who are playing around with their sin. I'm looking for those who are harboring anger or lust or any other sin for that matter. I'm looking for those who don't have their spiritual armor on so that I can then devour them. So he's moving around wanting to take someone and literally rip that person to shreds looking for someone to devour. Now, please note that Satan's goal isn't to devour unbelievers because he already has them. No, his goal is to devour us Christians. And even though he can't take away our salvation, praise the Lord, he can indeed mess with our life and our testimony and our joy and and our witness, and he can certainly bring devastation and damage to us if we're not on guard. One says, Jesus came seeking sinners, the devil seeks saints. He looks for Christians with their guard down. He couldn't keep Christians from becoming Christians, so now he wants to make them ineffective Christian. And he will do everything in his diabolical power to render them ineffective. He wants an impotent Christian and an impotent church. That's exactly what he wants. David Jeremiah says this about Satan's schemes. Listen to this. If you could sneak into Satan's office, wherever that may be, and take a peek into his files... You might be surprised to find a file folder with your name on it. Yes, he he keeps a file on you. And inside that file are all the strategies that he's tried on you. The ones that have worked and the ones that have failed. He doesn't waste his time with the ones that don't work anymore. Instead, he uses variations on the strategies that have caused you to stumble in the past. As long as they keep working, he keeps using them. And that, that really does fit with the word wiles, which again describes deliberate planning and a systematic approach to bringing you, the Christian, down to devouring you, to destroying your witness, and to destroying your life. And look, our call is to stand strong against him, and again, we can We can. For while Satan is a very powerful and deceptive and wily enemy, hey, our good God is much more powerful and he lives in every Christian. See, Satan is a defeated foe and his doom is certain. Satan is acting on a leash, God's leash. And Satan is no match for the Lord God Almighty. When we fight him with the right weapons. But when we don't, When we don't put on the full armor every day, when we do take him lightly, when we don't take him seriously, when we play around like this spiritual life is a playground rather than a battleground, that's when we flee instead of stand and battle well. And and we don't want to be fleers. Is that a word? Because it's only in God's power that we are strong. And it's only in God's power that we can truly stand firm. And we must stand firm. We must. Fleeing is for cowards. We don't want to be cowards. This is serious. It's nothing to take lightly. The battle is real. And the battle is raging right now. Paul continues in verses 12 through 13. Look. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Here in verse 12, we see a sobering truth that 
we in Christ don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So the struggle isn't physical, but it's supernatural. One said, it's a spiritual battle against spiritual mafia. And look, this is what we are wrestling against. <laughs> the word for wrestle is from the Greek word polo. This is a, also the word from which the Greeks derive their name for the palestra, which was a huge palace of combat sports that was situated in the center of the most uh, largest and ancient of cities. The palestra was a huge building that outwardly looked like a palace, but was dedicated to the cultivation of athletic skills. Each morning, afternoon, and night, the most committed, determined, and daring athletes of the day could be found in this building working out and and training for their respective sports. Three kinds of athletes primarily worked out at the palestra. Boxers, wrestlers, and pancreatists. Each of these sports forms the backdrop of the word wrestle here in Ephesians 6.12. Now, the first and most feared combat sport was boxing. However, the boxers from the first century weren't like our boxers today or even cage fighters or whatever. (laughs) Their sport was extremely violent, so violent that they weren't permitted to box without wearing helmets. See, without the protection of helmets, their heads would have been literally crushed. In fact, this sport was so severe that few boxers ever lived to retire from their profession. No, most of them died in the ring. Of all the sports, the ancient ancients viewed boxing as the most hazardous and the most deadly. See, in this brutal and barbaric sport, the ancient boxers wore gloves that were ribbed with steel and spiked with nails. At times, the steel was wrapped around other uh, around their gloves that was serrated like the blade of a hunting knife in order to make deep gashes into the opponent's skin. In addition, they used extremely heavy gloves that made every punch more damaging. Also, there were no rules. There were no rounds like there is in boxing today. The fight just went on and on until one of the two surrendered or died in the ring. Next, there were wrestlers, which can also was a very, which also was a very deadly sport in the first century. In fact, most wrestlers chose to fight to the death rather than walk out of the ring in humiliation and defeat. It was an ugly, bloody sport. In order to make an opponent surrender, it was natural to, normal to strangle him into submission. See, wrestling was a sport that tolerated every imaginable tactic. Breaking fingers, breaking ribs, gashing the face, gouging out the eyes, things like that. Wrestling was a bitter struggle to the very end. The third combat sport was pancreation. The word literally means all-powerful. See, these fighters were the fiercest, toughest, and most committed of all. In this sport, they were permitted to kick and to punch and to bite and to gouge and to strike and to break fingers and break legs and to do anything any other horrible thing that you can imagine, and there was no part of the human body that was off limits. They could do anything they wanted to any part of their competitor's body because they were basically, again, no rules, and most of these people ended up dead. Okay, thanks for all that, John. Why talk about this? Because all of these images are contained in the word wrestle that Paul uses here in verse 12. See, when Paul use that Greek word for wrestle, everyone would have immediately seen all these images in their minds, boxers, wrestlers, and pancreatists. So what does this then show us? That this spiritual battle 
that every Christian is in, it's not a game. Not at all. That our conflict is intensely serious. That we are all in a bitter struggle against an unseen but very real enemy. That we are involved in hand-to-hand combat with an enemy that wants to rule, rule us and that wants to ruin us. And again, he doesn't follow any rules. Note this, that often the loser in a Greek wrestling contest had his eyes gouged out. And that's another image that the Ephesian believers who were reading these words would have pictured in their minds when they read this. This isn't a sport here. This is serious business that we are all in as Christians. So in one sense, we're all in this together, which is very encouraging. But in another sense, we all have to fight our own fight. And we can't fight anyone else's fight. And so Paul pictures a person, a person engaged in an intense struggle involving non-physical forces and against extremely strong opposition. And this is our reality as Christians. We are soldiers in war. We are wrestlers in mortal combat. And it's, it's not against flesh and blood though. It's spiritual. Just as real but spiritual and not physical. Now look, wrestling and the other sports that are associated with it is one of the most strenuous of all sports. I mean, when you wrestle, every muscle is strained, every nerve is tight, the bodies are banging up against each other, sweaty, fierce, tiring, agonizing. As one noted, there's nothing dainty about it. It's not a graceful exercise of give and take, not at all. This is what we are to do spiritually against the spiritual hosts of wickedness. And I don't think many Christians really see it like that. Now, because it's a spiritual battle, we often act like it's not really there, or we act like it's really not that big of a deal. How foolish. How foolish. It is there, it is real, it is fierce, it is agonizing, it is serious, and it's indeed something that every Christian is engaged in, and frankly, too many aren't standing firm, but they are fleeing. What about you? See, for too many Christians these days, Satan is very happy with you, thank you very much, because you're not putting on your spiritual armor every day, and you're not fighting, and you're not wrestling, and you're not a good soldier, and you're no spiritual threat to the wicked one whatsoever, but I want us to be a threat. I want us here to be a threat, a serious threat. Don't you? Come on, that's not good enough. Come, come on, this is serious. This leads to the second truth, which is this, that we wrestle against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now here... Paul uses a variety of terms to refer to our spiritual enemies. We should therefore regard them as being on many different levels and of many different ranks, yet they all have one goal, to bring us down, to destroy us, to gouge out our eyes, to choke us out, to chase, to cause us to flee instead of stand strong, to chase us away. So it seems that these are categories of demonic beings who are highly and intensely organized. 
So just as the angels are highly organized, so too are demons. And they aren't all the same. No, there are different kinds of angels. For example, the Bible mentions archangels, cherubim, seraphim, and so on. And they have different functions and they have different capacities. The same is true with demons who are fallen angels. An example of this is seen in Daniel 9 and 10. Daniel had been praying and fasting for three weeks when an angel then appeared to him. The angel went on to explain that he had come in response to Daniel's prayer. Love that. And look, the angel would have arrived sooner. But on his way to assisting Daniel, he got confronted up in the heavens somewhere by a demon who held him up for a time. So God then dispatched Michael, who's a super angel, an archangel, who then came and helped him. What does that show us? It gives us a brief glimpse into the unseen world of spiritual conflict, and it points out the distinction in angelic beings. And it seems that certain demons have authority over entire nations and over entire kingdoms. Interesting to note that the demon who stood in opposition was called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. So, They're not only very powerful, but they're also very well organized. So there are distinctions where you have the principalities and the powers who are seen, who seem to be more involved in higher operations. And then you have the rulers of the darkness of this age, or more literally translated, the world rulers of this darkness. That probably speaks of demons who infiltrate the political structures of this world. They are the world rulers of this darkness, which refers to hell and to the dominion of Satan. So darkness is associated with Satan's dominion. And look, world rulers come from this darkness. Most believe that this means that behind the scenes, that demonic forces are ruling this world, generally speaking. And I think that's clear, is it not? I mean, that Satan and his wicked minions are behind what's going on in this world. I mean, he's the God, little G, of this world. He's the temporary prince of this world, and that's easy to see. And his demons are very, very busy indeed. So clearly, we are in a warfare that is very clever and complex. There are high-ranking and powerful demons who are principalities and powers. There are others who occupy places of world leadership and, and they indwell the world rulers. And there are spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, there's a lot of them. There's a host of them, and they are wicked, evil, base, sinful, malicious, malicious, and malevolent, and they are at work. They're always, 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 always working. So, the battle lines are drawn, right? And it's against these unseen but very real wicked forces that we are to fight with passion and with intensity. Question, why do you think we're so intent to give you God's word as clearly, passionately, accurately, and plainly as we possibly can when it's not always easy to do that? Why do, you, why do we do that? Because it's the word of God that's powerful and effective and changes us. And, and it's the gospel that's the power of God for salvation We, we desperately, because we desperately want you to stand firm. 
And it's the word of God that's going to allow you to do that. And, and we want you to be a, a force for God and against Satan. And we want you to have the principles of, uh, to get the armor on and to live the powerful, victorious Christian life more and more. And we want to do some real damage to Satan's kingdom. And more than anything else, we want to glorify Christ and be well-pleasing to Him, our all in all. And that's going to only come through, through the Word of God. For those of us who have the Spirit of God in us. See, we don't want a, a comfortable church. We don't want a fun church or a worldly church or a mediocre church or a compromising church that everyone likes and many people go to but isn't doing anything in their spiritual battle at hand. We don't want that. We want a church filled with warriors and filled with wrestlers who engage the enemy and stand firm to the very end for the glory of God. And that's why we are intent to give you the word of God here. See? It's so important. So... What then do we have to do? I kind of gave it away. (laughs) This. Take up the full armor of God and stand. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The call then for us, very clear, take up the full armor of God. What is the armor? I can't wait. What's the armor? Well, we're going to get to that next week. So come back, but... But it all centers around the Word of God. See? It all centers around the Word of God. And prayer encompasses that, right? And that's available to all of us. But for now, my prayer is that we will all see more clearly than ever that as Christians, we have everything that we need to fight well in the spiritual battle at hand. And even though our enemy is powerful and mighty and well-organized and so on, hey, we indeed can stand and fight and, and wrestle him. And we can do great damage to his wicked and evil kingdom. Yes, we can. And we should all earnestly want to do that, right? I mean, don't we earnestly want to fight well and glorify Christ as well in the meantime? Then put on the armor and stand. In the evil day, when is the evil day? Today's the evil day. This is the evil day and so will tomorrow be. It's been that way since Satan usurped the throne of the world and it will continue to be that way until he is finally cast into the bottomless pit. Can't wait for that. But until then, the picture is of soldiers with all their armor on standing strong. May that be us here. Every one of us. Don't you love the picture of a great battle coming to an end? Dust is everywhere or smoke. Finally, it, 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 the, the, the dust settles and the smoke clears. And look, someone is standing. Isn't that good? That, the, the victor is standing. You? Uh, me? Us? You can't stand if you don't put on that armor. Look, Satan's going after you. Is he going after your marriage? Fight. Fight. Put on the armor. Don't give in to the wicked one who's scheming to bring you down. Man up and stand up and don't give him the victory. Keep wrestling to the bitter end and don't let him put his foot on your neck. No, you stand strong and you prove him the loser. Is he going after your purity? Fight! Put on the armor. 
Don't give in to the wicked one who's scheming to bring you down. Man up and stand up and don't give him the victory. Keep wrestling to the bitter end and don't let him put his foot on your neck. No, you stand strong and you prove him the loser. Is he going after your sobriety? Fight! Put on the armor. Don't give in to the wicked one who's scheming to bring you down. Man up and stand up and don't give him the victory. Keep wrestling to the bitter end and don't let him put his foot on your neck. No, you stand strong and prove him the loser. Is he trying to keep you mediocre, depressed, lukewarm, indifferent? No, fight! Put on the armor. Don't give in to the wicked one who is scheming to bring you down. Man up and stand up and don't give him the victory. Keep wrestling to the bitter end and don't let him put his foot on your neck. No, you stand strong and you prove him the loser. This isn't a game. This is war. This is war. And every Christian is in this war. We're all in it. Hey, fighting in hand-to-hand combat against these hideous and powerful and wretched forces of darkness may not be your idea of a good time. However, it's an inescapable part of the Christian life. It is what it is. Don't you love that saying? And look, because this powerful, wicked enemy seeks to destroy us, we must fight by taking up God's full armor so that we can resist and stand firm in the evil day. Lord, make us warriors here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be warriors here and I pray that each of us would be convicted so that we stand firm. Help us, Lord, to put on the armor every day and To, to wrestle well, to battle well, to not give in. Help us to be strong, warriors for your glory. May we do great damage to the wicked one. And may we greatly glorify you here. Bless us and encourage us and strengthen us now in Jesus' name. Amen.